The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Do an introduction to 1 Corinthians. So let me tell you what you don't need. You don't need this piece of paper right now. So let's get rid of that. We're going to talk about that later. The big piece. Inside the info guide is an outline. You do need a copy of the Bible. If you don't have one with you, you're on page 952 in the Bible that is underneath your chair. So if you take one of those, turn to page 952. We're going to to fly a, a high level view of the entire book of 1 Corinthians in the next few minutes as we work together to try to grasp an understanding of what 1 Corinthians is all about. If this is your first time worshiping at Parkwood in the back of a chair in front of you is a connect card. Will you take that, fill out the information on it. At the end of our service, we're going to receive an offering and we only want you to participate by putting that card in the offering plate and letting us know that you are here with us today. Let me pray for us and then we'll launch into 1 Corinthians. Father, thank you for the time to study your holy and precious word. Thank you for 1 Corinthians. Thank you for the timely word that it is to us today, 2019, in Gastonia, North Carolina, in the United States of America. Lord, speak now. We pray and plead in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you some basic information, background on 1 Corinthians. I don't like to be bored by history and facts. So I've extracted some essential facts that you would need to know to help you understand 1 Corinthians and to answer this question. Why would 1 Corinthians relate to today? So Corinth is a city in Greece. It's still there. I've been there multiple times myself. It is located between two major bodies of water. Four miles separate, uh, the, the four miles of land separate these two bodies of water. So people had the idea to say, we're going to build a road between these two bodies of water so that people don't have to sail around the bottom of Greece, which was very dangerous. They lost lives and cargo. So they began to to dock the ship on one side, put the cargo in a wagon or whatever, and transport it to the other side, put it in another fence. So this made Corinth a major city where lots of commerce was happening. So at the time that Paul writes... I find this pretty staggering. 800,000 people lived in Corinth. That is a massive city in first century days. It was a place of wealth. It was a place of people of all kinds. Roman soldiers lived there along with their families. It had entrepreneurs, traders, freedmen, slaves. Um, Even though it was in Greece, Corinth was mostly a Roman city because it was under Roman dominance at the time Paul writes. You can still visit the Roman ruins that are there today. So what did did the Corinthian people value? What mattered to the Corinthian people? Here are the things. Honor, status, prestige. They were massive on self-promotion. They would have loved social media. They would have loved to have been able to promote themselves and to put themselves out there. Uh, they were the first people or some of the first people to put their names on buildings as a place of wealthy benefactors to do it. What they valued above everything, get this, was individual rights. That you're free to do whatever it is that you want to do. 
This birthed out of the religion of the day. It was a pluralistic culture. There was no one religion that dominated this area. There were pagan religions. Uh, there were the religions of the Romans, the polytheistic religion of Romans and the Greeks. It was kind of all mixed together in this pluralistic society. Above all else, and multiple people would say this, wealth was the number one thing they worshipped in Corinth. The moral climate as a result of these values and religion was that it was a pagan city where idol worship dominated. Sexual promiscuity was all tied into their individual rights. It got tied into their religious practices. I'll say more about that later on in our study of 1 Corinthians. And they were a greedy people. They would take advantage of each other and abuse each other with any chance that they got. Then the gospel comes. This is found in Acts chapter 18. So I want you to turn there. I'm going to read this narrative of how the gospel comes to Corinth. So Paul was in Athens in chapter 17 of Acts. He preaches the gospel there. He moves about 90 miles down to Corinth. As you find, Paul will go to these major cities where people from all over the world are passing through. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that's the Roman emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, and they were tent makers by trade. So six days a week, they made tents. On the Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, that was north of them, Paul was occupied with the word. So Paul's no longer making tents. He just focused on preaching the gospel. Testifying to Jews and that the Christ, that Christ, the Christ was Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. When the opposing reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That does not mean he left Corinth. It just means he shifted his focus from the Jewish people to the Gentile people. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Isn't that something? He leaves folks in the synagogue and the first person recorded to saved is Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack or harm you. And I have many people in, in this city who are my people. He stayed there a year and six months teaching the word among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's the region, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Let me just insert something here. Every pagan culture will create laws to keep evangelism from happening. It's coming. You wait. It's already in your workplace, so to speak, but it's coming. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to judge these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now turn to 1 Corinthians and watch the connection. Paul 
called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, Sosthenes. So Sosthenes obviously left with Paul on his missionary journeys and becomes his secretary, a person who's writing. So both of these men would have had a strong connection back to Corinth. And it births this letter that comes. Now, this would have been two and a half years later when Paul writes 1 Corinthians. Now, I want you to grasp this because most of you have grown up in a Christian culture. Four years earlier, no gospel, no church in Corinth. No point of reference for it whatsoever. You're four years after the gospel has come and after this young church has been established. It's no surprise that they are still struggling with their pagan beliefs, and with the pagan influence that's going on around this small church. Paul does not allow it to be an excuse. He hits it head on. And here's his purpose. The purpose of 1 Corinthians, this is our main idea today, is to establish the preeminence of the gospel, express deep concern over worldly behavior, and offer instruction for the life and witness of the church, all to the glory of God. The point of Paul's letter is something we desperately need to hear today. He writes to teach this Corinthian church, particularly he's talking about what should characterize the church, what must be evident within the church of God's people. He focuses at the beginning on the gospel. We've already read this text, 1 Corinthians 1, 22. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. So he first establishes the preeminence of the gospel in the church. In this letter, he uses the word Christ 64 times, the word Lord 66 times, and the word Jesus 26 times. Now, I just want you to listen as we read together the very beginning of the book, how gospel saturated his opening remarks are. Listen to this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always because of the grace that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In verse 17, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be empty of its power. Now, in that statement, we find out something about the Corinthians. They valued education, and the use of argument and logic, extremely. And there were these teachers who moved from city to city and they would establish themselves with their ability to offer a speech and to offer an argument and they would win followers. 
And Paul is saying, we're not like them. We're not trying to come up with some eloquent, winsome speech. We are gospel people. John Calvin, writing at the, at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, which would have been a very similar point in time, even though people were religious, the gospel had lost its power. Here's what he said about the Corinthians. The Corinthians desired doctrine that was ingenious rather than useful. The gospel had no relish for them. They were eager for something new because Christ had become stale to them. I don't know about you, but does that sound modern or not? Is people flock to these teachers who open their Bible and give you a new word? Who pass over the gospel? Who don't preach it or proclaim it? Folks, we live in Corinth. We live in a day and age that resembles what is in this letter. If there is a relevant passage of Scripture, or section of Scripture, and it's all relevant, but if there's one that particularly, it's as if he wrote this to Gastonia. It's if he said it to us now. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's my prayer that not just me, but I can say this to the two pastors who preached at this place before me, and I pray until Jesus comes, that there will always be people who stand in this pulpit who preach Christ and Him crucified. Who are not enamored with some kind of means to draw a crowd. Just preach Christ. This gospel clarity, this preeminence of the gospel, he begins there, he also ends there. I want you to turn over to chapter 15. I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which was you received and which you stand, by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, I firmly believe this. If you can't articulate the gospel, I don't think you can believe it. How can you believe something you can't speak back? I'm not talking about quoting the verses particularly. Here's the essence of the gospel recorded for you in the Bible. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now that reveals multiple things. I'm sinful, you're sinful. Our sin had to be dealt with. So God sent his son who had no sin, who on the cross became sin and died in our place taking the sacrifice and bearing the wrath of God on our behalf for our sin. His blood shed for us that we've just sang about. There is no other way into salvation. Christ had to shed his blood, but that is not the complete gospel. He was buried. And on the third day, he was raised in accordance with the scripture. This is the gospel. If Christ has not been raised, he is no savior. Because of the resurrection, we know that he is who he said he was. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A member came up to me today, obviously been reading 1 Corinthians, and said, I've been thinking a lot about the sting of death. And I said, that's great, but don't stop there because the rest of the verse says victory. Death's not the end for us. Victory through Jesus Christ who has redeemed us. And until that day when Christ comes or we draw our last breath, the gospel will sustain us. Look at the very end of the book, 1 Corinthians 16. 
Verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. That means he takes up the pen now. Sosthenes is not writing what he's dictating anymore. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, everybody listen carefully. Paul starts on an extremely positive note at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, and he ends on an extremely positive note. In the middle, it's not so positive. He has some very strong things to say to the Corinthian church. So for the next few minutes, we're going to overview some of those strong things that he says that you primarily find in chapters 3 through 10, which is the expectation of holiness and a deep concern over worldly behavior in the church. What you see is Paul reflecting Deuteronomy as God through Moses gives instructions for what his people are to look like and what they are to do and not do. And Isaiah, the prophet, who speaks into the people who are disobeying God and calling them to repentance and who promises them of the kingdom that is yet to come. It's not surprising there are multiple quotes from Deuteronomy and Isaiah throughout the book. The first thing he lays down is the expectation of holiness that we are a set-apart people. We are God's people. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, to be the saints together with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not just the believers in Corinth. This is true of every believer, that we're sanctified. We are set apart. We are holy. (laughs) I had somebody say this to me recently. This is not the first time I've heard this in Gastonia. Probably not the first time I've heard it in this church. It went something like this. Well, I'm a Christian, but you know, she's very religious. To which I can't resist that. What do you mean? Well, you know, like she takes her faith very serious. You don't? Oh, it's quiet in here. So there's like two levels of being a Christian. There's the not serious Christian and the serious Christian. This is false theology. It is. We are sanctified. We are set apart. We are God's unique people. We are a holy people. I'll use the word they like to use with me. We are deeply religious people. We are followers of the Lord. We are God's dwelling place. Look in chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. What's he saying? I'll illustrate it this way. You didn't come to church. You came and gathered with the church. This is a building. This is not a church. You who are in Christ are the church. You are God's temple. You are God's dwelling place. And God is saying we don't harm his church. We don't harm his people. We are a people who bear the name of Christ. Chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. Skip down to verse 19. 
Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with what? A price. And that price is the blood of Christ, which we celebrated just a few moments ago. So, he says, glorify God in your body. Now, when God's people ignore this truth that we are a set-apart people, that we are God's temple, and we begin to look like the rest of the world, that is a grievous thing. It is not something to be passed over. We are called to be a distinct people in a distinct time in a distinct place. We don't say, well, you know, it's really hard to be a Christian in today. What, what, what if you were a Christian at Corinth? Well, you, you know, we're going to look at it in a minute. This unity is one of the problems they have. Well, I'm not getting along with Corinthians. I'm going to go to another church. Which one? There wasn't another one. We are God's people. And there's supposed to, be, supposed to be things very unique about us. Now, he presses. He becomes deeply concerned over their worldly behavior. The first way it showed up is disunity. And I'm just using one verse. This is all over 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Brothers, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for you're still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh behaving in a human way? Now, here's the question. Here's the simple question. What was the cause of jealousy and strife among you? Watch this. This is unbelievable to me. The issue of jealousy and strife is this. This group over here said, I'm, I'm for Apollos. This group over here said, I'm with Paul. In other words, celebrity preachers had showed up in Corinth. They all had Twitter accounts. See who could get the most likes every week. Who get the most Facebook hits. People were lining up behind them. Brothers and sisters, disunity comes when we start lining up in a human way underneath people, even people in the church. Here's the core issue. The core issue of disunity, though, when you study the entire book, is personal preference. They were taking that mentality of Corinth and dragging it into the church and saying, this is how I want things. And if you don't do things the way I want it, I'm leaving I really don't have time to say this, but I'm going to. Uh, if you think we get in meetings and somebody says, well, we better not do that because that guy gives a lot of money. That motivates us around here. You would be wrong. The moment a church gives into allowing some loud negative person to use some kind of influence, it kills the church. It doesn't just hurt it. It kills it. Disunity is worldly. Whatever the source, it is worldly. The second issue was sexual immorality. Now turn to chapter 5. This is really in the Bible. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. You just stopped right there. 
What Paul's saying is, y'all, you know there are people in the church who are living in sexual immorality and you're, you're turning your head. And of a kind, he says, that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. He's totally astounded as to what they're condoning. This is a quote. The church makes Paul angrier than the man. Don't miss this. He's not primarily upset with this man. He's upset with the church. Why? For worse than a church in which someone commits adultery is a church that says nothing about people who commit adultery. One is an individual error. The other is a failure of the entire church. Their tolerance undermines the very life of the church as if the body's immune system were failing. When that happens, when your immune system happens, what's coming for you? Death. Death. Everybody's like, why is the church dying in the West? It's this reason right here. Because the church in America is tolerating sin all under the guise of unity and love. All we're doing is reflecting the culture. If Paul wrote us a letter, he would speak as strongly or stronger to us as he spoke to Corinth. Do you not know, I'm in chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now here's what he's saying. When you allow people who are doing these things into the church and you treat them as viable members, you're saying to somebody who's lost and going to hell that they're a Christian. It's deceptive. What's that always saved? Is that what he said right here? Now he's not saying you can lose your salvation. Here's what he's saying. There are people who are going to claim to be Christians, but when it becomes evident that they're not, then we let them know you're not. I don't know whether to amen me or not. I just want to say this before I move on. This is one example I've been, I've been pastoring here a very long time, and in the last few years, we've always practiced church discipline. In the last few years is the first time that I'm starting to see people stiffen their back and say, nope, I'm going to sin. And I, I'm, I'm here telling you all today, we're not going to tolerate it. We're not. And you can clap. It will not be easy. One of the other issues is lawsuits. So if you have a wealthy, greedy culture, you're going to have lawsuits. I mean, you can't drive down the interstate now without a lawyer billboard everywhere. We live in a culture where people are sued all the time. And here's what, what was happening people were suing each other inside the church. Paul says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Plural. It's a defeat for the church. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now the context is, here's what Paul's saying. We're going to have disagreements among each other. That's why we need to forgive. 
That's why we need church leadership to help us work through our disagreements. But the point is, don't take it to the courts and drag the name of Jesus out into the courts. You let the church work with you to solve it. And at the end of the day, if it can't be solved, you take the wrong for the sake of the gospel. I just love how quiet it is. Next, rights above one another. Thus sinning against your brothers and winning their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. If others share this rightful claim on you, do you not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of the right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So the greatest fear of modern evangelicals is legalism. And legalism is anti-gospel. I agree with you. But here's what's happened. If you say anything is sinful or wrong, you're legalistic. Am I the only one noticing this? Huh? Well, I can do that. The Bible doesn't condemn me doing that. So there's an illustration here. People were going to, to, to buy meat, and some of the meat had been sac- an, an idol sacrifice. And then instead of wasting the meat, they took it down to the meat market and sold it. And some people were buying it and eating it, and they didn't have any problem with it. It's just meat. But other people were associating that with pagan worship. Maybe they came out of that temple or something before they were saved, and they couldn't eat it. So you have that guy over to eat supper with you. And he sits down at the meal and says, where does this meat came from? Well, it came from Apollo's temple. I can't eat that. Legalist. What Paul's saying is, we don't violate each other's conscience for the sake of our personal rights. We seek what's better for the whole. Last is idolatry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Therefore, my beloved, free, flee from idolatry. Chapter 10, verse 14. Anything can be an idol. Everything has been an idol. And we're making an idol out of everything in this culture. We even have a TV show about it. American Idol. When we are called to flee idolatry, we've got to move away from anything that tastes, replaces the Lord Jesus in our life. And when we flee it, where do we go? What do we do? The Bible never leaves us in a vacuum. So what you have in chapters 11 through 16 is instructions for the life and witness of the church. The first thing we're to do is pursue unity. We go all the way back to the beginning. To the church of God, chapter 1, that is incarnate, those who are sanctified, called to be saints together. We are in Christ and we are called to function together as the body of Christ. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. There be no divisions among you, that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Christ is to be our unifier. We are to pursue him. We are to pursue him and obey his word. And that requires sometimes hard decisions. Back to chapter 5. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, this is a gospel issue. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here's what you do. You want to act like a pagan? Then go live like one. And here's what we're praying, that God's going to use this 
to cause you to understand you are far from him and you need to repent. As long as you allow somebody who's living in sin to stay in the church, then you're condoning their sin to them. You are harming them and harming the church. We must recognize that we are one body. A lady came up to me earlier this morning and told me that she likely has cancer and should be going tomorrow for a biopsy. If they find cancer, you think she's going to say, oh, just leave it there. You can do the math. Just as one body, I'm in chapter 12, has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Here's the simplicity, brothers and sisters. We display unity when we function together according to the Bible. That's why we're studying 1 Corinthians. How do we function according to the Bible in a pagan age and world? So we must display unity and we must display love. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm moving through several text. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. Now when we read 1 Corinthians 13, you're often thinking about this couple standing here gazing into each other's eyes and the pastor gets up and reads this lofty text of how they're to gaze in one another's eyes for the rest of their married life. Paul does not have a marriage in his mind at all. He's not thinking about a couple. He's thinking about a dysfunctional church that is at each other's throat, that is full of sin, who's suing each other. But at the same time, they get together and prophesy and speak in tongues and proud of the fact they're doing that and being real proud of who can speak in tongues and who can't speak in tongues and who can prophesy and who can't prophesy. And he comes to chapter 13 and here's what he says. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move, move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So in other words, if I end up a martyr, and he says this, love is patient and kind. Any difficult people go to Parkwood? I do. <laughs> I, I've been known to be difficult. Here's what love is toward me. Patience and kindness. Hey, when you parents get together, here's what love is. It does not envy or boast. Your kids aren't Jesus. Quit trying to make the rest of us feel like your kids are Jesus because they're not. Mamas, you don't have to be super mama. Dads, you don't have to make all the money and be the best guy in the business. Love does not envy and it does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. I cannot believe what people say to each other now. And I'm everybody be forewarned. If I see you being ugly with each other on Facebook, I'm going to reach out to you. That is a gospel issue. Rudeness is rudeness, whether it's personal or on the internet. 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Some of you need to get over yourself. We're all tired of you being in a bad mood. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. In other words, you don't look at this guy who's committing adultery with his father's wife and go, okay. doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. So now faith, hope, and love abide with these things, but these three things, but the greatest of these is love. So that brings me to, to bring application here. So what? True love, brothers and sisters, will go deeper than sentiment and pious performance. True love will draw us together and draw us outward to the stranger for Christ's sake. Because the kind of love that we know is the kind of love shown to us in Christ. This is how God's glory is going to be displayed in the church. Whether it's the church at Corinth or the church in Gastonia. It is displayed in the lives of his people. Who give themselves to holiness, to unity, and to love. So here's my question. Are we, Parkwood Baptist Church, glorifying God? Are we? 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you, that's plural, not singular. And that's applied to my individual life, but plural. Are, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, Parkwood, do all to the glory of God. This week we were in a pastor's meeting and one of the pastors was telling a story about a growth group. That when they get together, they eat. A lot of your growth groups do that. And the women were bringing too much dessert. So they had extra every week. So somebody had the idea, let's take it to the neighbors. The first couple times they knock on the door and said, hey, we've got this dessert. Would you like to have it? I'm sure the neighbor was thinking, what's in this? Arsenic or what? <laughs> and these weird people that park all those cars in front of my house every day. So here's what happened. Earlier in this week, there was a knock on the door. And this is how the conversation started. All I know is there's something different about you people because you're kind and nice. Otherwise, you wouldn't have brought me a dessert multiple times. You don't know me, but I am devastated and I need some help. Could you help me? Amen. All I, all I can think about, all I can think about when this pastor is telling this story, whether you eat or drink, do it all the glory of God. A simple dessert is now led to a gospel opportunity. Simplicity. So brothers and sisters, here's the simplicity. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Christ is preeminent. Pursue unity. Display love to each other. Live for Christ in every area of your life together and individually. Let us all do it to the glory of God. These words mean something deeply to me because they were shaped by the Bible. This is not some kind of catchy phrase. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. 
our neighbors, and to the nations. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 1 Corinthians and for the deep way I've been challenged already. There are joyful days ahead of us and there are going to be some difficult days ahead of us as we seek to bring application into the life of this local church. Lord, you're going to continue to reveal places like you did to Corinth to where we are in error. May we be patient with one another as we work through by the power of the Holy Spirit what needs to be dealt with. Lord, lead us to obedience. Open our eyes. Give us a spirit of repentance. Lord, build your church. Do what only you can do here. Continue your work through Parkwood. We plead and we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.